All right, Flatirons, good morning. Um, I'm happy to see that you're here, even on 4th of July weekend. That, that means you must either love Jesus a lot or you just didn't plan ahead and come up with anything fun to do today. Either way, I'm very happy that you're here with us. Um, I want to tell you a story about a trip that I recently took, because a few weeks ago, um, I spent a few days down in Texas, all right? And I was in Texas for this thing called Life Plan. Life Plan is like this two-day-long extensive like counseling session that helps you to understand yourself and then to understand your goals and then to create a plan for your life to achieve those goals. That part was great, all right? But the rest of the trip was actually kind of strange for me, and that's because I was doing this Life Plan thing just 30 minutes away from where I grew up. I grew up just north of Dallas. I lived there for 16 years. I left in 2006 and I never looked back. Um, And in the 16 years since I've been back, a lot can change. I'm assuming a lot of you have had this experience. It's like going back to visit the place you grew up can get strange. All right, some of it was fun and nostalgic. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like driving around, I would see stuff that I'd forgotten about. Like, it's like, oh, there's the neighborhood where I used to mow yards. Like that was my first business or whatever. And then I remember driving by going like, oh, that's where the Blockbuster used to be, which was a place of total magic when you were a kid in the 90s. And I also laughed because I passed a CC's pizza that's been around since like Jesus has been around, I think. Um, and it was actually that CC's pizza where I won a pizza eating contest with my buddies. I won by eating 21 slices of CC's pizza. I got two rewards for that competition. The first was hard earned respect from my buddies. The second reward was an evening of biological violence in the bathroom, but... Um, So some of it was fun and nostalgic, but for me at least, a lot of it was also strange. And because it put me in a place of contrast, like where you could just really easily for a moment see what life used to be like versus what life is like now. And the biggest contrast that I found in my life was the way I used to spend downtime versus the way I spend it now. And here's why it was such a huge contrast, all right? My first two days in Texas, there are these, I'm in these 10-hour long life plan meetings. By the time you're done, your brain is melted. And so I'm not gonna get anything productive done in the evenings, but at the same time, I don't wanna sit in silence in my honestly horrifying hotel room, all right? I found the cheapest hotel in Denton, Texas, and I got what I paid for, all right? My room looked like Best way to describe it is like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen it in an episode of CSI. That's what my hotel room looked like. And then my hotel neighbors um, would spend their evenings slamming hotel doors and shouting at each other. And they promised each other, quote, you ain't never going to see me again. Say goodbye. And they would shout that constantly. Like I, probably 15 times I heard this guy say, you're never going to see me again. But then he wouldn't leave. They just kept arguing. I'm getting sidetracked. The point I'm trying to make right now is that on my first two evenings, I had something that I don't have much of anymore. I had downtime. All right, I, no kids, no spouse, no, no work to do and no house to clean up. I just had total downtime. How did I spend that downtime? Well, honestly, as quickly as possible, I filled it with noise and distraction. The, the first night, I went to go see Top Gun Maverick, which is a total blast, by the way. Um, and then I went 
to the hotel, went to bed. The second night, I almost saw Top Gun again, but I thought that would be weird. And so I went and got food and brought it back to the hotel. I watched a documentary on my phone, and then I went to bed. I finally had downtime, and I spent that time distracting myself. And it felt like such a huge contrast because on my last day in Texas, before my flight, I spent a few hours driving around my hometown and like going to see the old houses that I grew up in and the schools that I went to. And what's interesting is that the two spots that I wanted to visit more than anything else, hands down, are the two creeks that I used to play in growing up. Because I've spent countless hours in these creeks, sometimes with friends, honestly, most of the time alone. And I have all these fond memories. And so on my last day, I park the car and I walk down into the woods by one of these creeks and, and all these memories start coming back. Like started remembering some of the encounters I had with water moccasins, which are like scary, aggressive snakes. Um, I remember spending hours catching crawdads down in there. And I remember with my sister and I, we caught an armadillo one time and we took it home and we killed it because we didn't know what armadillos eat. <laughs> like we, it died from malnutrition. That's like killing a cactus. They're living tanks and we killed it. Um, these creeks were just like magic to me, basically. Like, like growing up, I, I really felt like they were these secret mystical hiding spots and like I was the only person in the world who knew they existed. And so I'm in this creek and all these memories are, are flooding back and, and I'm remembering how I used to spend my downtime, which of course you have a lot of when you're a kid. And I used to spend a lot of my downtime being still and being alone and being quiet in the woods. And it was such a big contrast because my previous two nights, I felt uncomfortable. And so I distracted myself to avoid being still and alone and quiet. But then here I am two days later, standing in the woods and remembering that being still, alone and quiet used to be this like valuable, beautiful part of my life. And my guess is that I'm not alone in this, right? My guess is that a lot of us have forgotten the art of being still and alone and quiet. And, and maybe some of us, like especially those of us in the younger generations, it's like maybe you've never ever discovered the art of being still and alone and quiet. And that's because we're living in the age of distraction, Right? This is something lots of people talk about, not just pastors, but also social commentators and technologists and social or mental health experts, neuroscientists, you name it. They say we're living in the age of distraction. And technology, whether that's your internet or your phone or TV or even down to like the toll tag on your car, technology has created the age of distraction and has done that in two big ways. Right? The first way is this. Technology has created more downtime than ever before. And that's because we don't have to work as hard at everyday tasks as we used to. So random example of this. Let's say your dishwasher breaks and you need to fix it, but you don't know how to fix it. Well, you no longer have to drive to a library and go look for the right book and then you know, check out a book on appliance repair and take it home and read it before you can get to work. Now you just jump on YouTube and watch a video, right? So like the time between your dishwasher breaking and you pulling out your toolbox has gone down from hours to just like minutes. Think about shopping. Right, like almost anything that you could ever want or need can be ordered online and shipped to your doorstep without you ever leaving your house. That's time placed back in your hands. 
You don't have to go to the store anymore and look through the shelves and realize they don't have what you need and then go to another store and hope that they have it. Like that way of life is gone. Think about driving. When I used to drive back from Tennessee to Texas to to visit during college, I had to pull out my trusty Rand McNally road atlas. And I had to spend time the day before like plotting my route to get back home. And then I had to really focus when I'm driving because I don't have that robot voice in my car going like, make a U-turn, right? I don't have that. Make a U-turn, make recalculating route. I didn't have that. Right? So if I wasn't paying attention, I would just find myself in Mississippi <laughs> and like lose a lot of time. All of this leads to more time in our pockets. That's the first way that technology has created the age of distraction. It's created more downtime than ever before. And then here's the other result of technology. Not only do we have more downtime than ever before, but technology has created more ways to spend your downtime than ever before. And that's because technology has given us countless things to do. For, for example, like there's so much content online that it's literally impossible for you to not have something new to watch every minute of the day. You could spend every minute of your waking life for a hundred years straight doing nothing but watching TV and movies and YouTube and you wouldn't be able to consume it all. On top of that, we've got social media. So if you start to feel bored and lonely, you can jump on Instagram and go look at other people's lives and like a few pictures and talk with people and make a few comments. If you get bored of that, you can play a game on your phone or your PlayStation. If you get bored of that, you can go find some new music on Spotify. If you get bored of that, there's always some sport being played somewhere in the world. And so you can get on ESPN Plus and go watch the English shin kicking championship or whatever. Uh, It's a real thing, by the way. These dudes kick each other in the shins until one of them gives up. It's brutal. Anyway, you, you get it. We can distract ourselves with a literal infinite amount of mindless entertainment. But then on top of that, technology also distracts us more than ever with what we keep calling productivity, even though I don't think it's very productive. That, that little red notification bubble, it's always there. There's always more email to answer and texts to reply to and phone calls to return and a reminder app is buzzing to remind us to mow the yard and change the air filter and take out the trash and our calendar is alerting us to all of our accidentally double booked meetings. It's just distraction after distraction. And so our phone is either buzz, buzz, buzzing with texts and emails and football scores which take us out of the present moment, moment Or we find ourselves with some downtime, and so we pull out our phones to scroll, scroll, scroll to distract ourselves from silence. And the result is that according to countless studies about how technology affects our lives and how it affects our brains, this age of distraction has not only gifted us with good things like awesome movies and access to information and connectivity, but it's also gifted us with some bad things. It's gifted us with worse sleep, and shorter attention spans, and a more sedentary and isolated daily experience. It's given us stunted imagination and creativity, atrophied social skills, especially in children. When you go read these studies, that one's scary. It's given us a decrease in a sense of having any privacy, and it's given us an increase in depression, anxiety, and stress-related health complications. And all of those things I just listed, we're starting to learn that they directly correspond to an individual's amount of screen time. 
meaning the hours on average a day that you spend on your phone or tablet. The more you spend doing that, the more likely you are to experience one or more of those negative effects in your life. And so this age of distraction, what it's doing is it's slowly eating away at our hearts and our minds and our spirits. And so what do we do about that? Well, I wanna tell you something curious about what we see in Jesus's life, all right? Because when we think of Jesus, we think of him being a busy man, which he was, right? He, he traveled and he taught and he did miracles and he fostered deep, meaningful relationships and he counseled people. Like Jesus packed more substantive, influential, world-changing work into his three years of ministry than any other pastor or leader to have ever lived since. He was a busy and productive man. But when you read about his life, and the way he spent his time, you discover something curious. You discover that not only was Jesus super busy and super productive, but also Jesus spent a lot of time doing nothing. And that, that sounds like almost sacrilegious at first, so let me explain that. All right, let me give you one of, of many potential examples here, but this one's in the very first chapter of Mark, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus's life. We're going to start in Mark chapter one, verse 32. All right, quick, like, uh, setup here. The first 31 verses of Mark, what we learn is that Jesus has been baptized. All right, he's gone out to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. He came back from that. He's already, like, hand-selected a few of his 12 disciples, and then he's done a ton of of miracles, all right? That's a lot of work for 31 verses. So Jesus has been busy, busy, busy. And now we'll pick up in verse 32 where life just gets even busier for Jesus. Look at this. It says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed and the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. All right, so we're told that this moment occurs in the evening after sunset. It's late. All right, this is also during a time before electricity. So typically people stopped working when the sun set. You, you couldn't see enough by candlelight to get much work done. So usually the sun sets and then you just chill and relax with your friends and your family and then you go to bed. And you gotta realize that Jesus has to be exhausted because remember, he's had a busy, busy, busy few weeks. And so the sun has finally set and I imagine Jesus is just chilling in someone's house and he's kicked his feet up and he's kind of like nodding off on the sofa and then what happens? Well, we're told that the whole town gathered at his front door. The whole town brought their like sick friends and family to Jesus and they're banging on the front door. Like the entire town is on the doorstep shouting and saying, hey, Jesus, now is not the time to take a break. You've got to get back to work. And I can imagine Jesus kind of like, you know, stretching and like rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and putting his sandals back on and taking a sip of water and taking a deep breath and then walking out the front door and getting back to work. Now, I'm assuming that you and I don't typically have our moments of peace interrupted by the entire neighborhood banging on the front door. And if that does happen to you, my guess is that you're probably a bad neighbor. Just mow the yard or get your dog to shut up or whatever you did to make the whole neighborhood mad. But I'm assuming that doesn't happen. But at the same time, we do experience what Jesus just experienced. 
we do experience it. We experience a seemingly like nonstop demand of our time, energy, and attention that distracts us and interrupts our moments of peace. It's just that it doesn't happen through our front door. It happens through our phones. We've all had these evenings, right? So you you get back after a really long day of work and you kick your shoes off and you sit down at the dinner table and you're ready to have a conversation with your wife and and your kids, but then, right? You You got an email. And that's right, you forgot to send that report before you left the office, but that's fine, that's quick, you can do that real quick. So you, you do that quickly, you put your phone back in your pocket, and you're like, all right, back to dinner. Your kids start telling you about something hilarious that happened at football practice or, or whatever, and, and you're starting to chuckle, but then bzz, bzz, get that text from your buddy, and your buddy's asking like, hey, are we still good for that double date tomorrow night? And it's a good thing he texted you because you completely forgot about it. And so now you're texting him, and you're like, yeah, no, we're still good for it. And you you tell your wife, and she had forgotten about it too. So now she pulls out her phone, and she's got to text the babysitter, right? And now you've got your calendar app open because you got to schedule that double date so that you don't forget it again. And while the calendar's open, you might as well just get a sneak peek of like the kind of week that you have coming up. And now across the table, your wife is now Venmoing the babysitter and you hear how much babysitting costs and you're like, what in the world? Why is she so expensive? Like, is she Mary Poppins? <laughs> What's going on? That makes you think of money. And so you pull out your, your app for your bank account and you see that inflation is real and it's hitting your balance and that gives you this stomach ache. But you can also see that, yeah, remember I made like 12 bucks on FanDuel last week, right? And that makes your stomach ache feel a little bit better because it's not gambling and it's not some dumb hobby. It's an investment, right? This is babysitting money. And so you get up from the dinner table and you go to the TV and you turn it on to ESPN because you're a man and you can multitask and you can sit and have a conversation with your family while also kind of listening in and coming up with a strategy for your next fan dual lineup. So you go back to the dinner table just in time to realize that your kids are done eating and your son's off playing the Nintendo Switch and your daughter's curled in a ball on the couch scrolling through Instagram and you're starting to feel sad about that when bzz, bzz, Uber Eats lets you know that they'll drop off dessert at a 20% discount if you order now. And so you open up Uber Eats because maybe ice cream can make up for the fact that you have said two words to your family so far tonight. I'm not throwing stones. I have so many dinners like that. And if we're being honest, it's not just dinner. It, that constant, bzz, bzz, it goes on all day and it goes on all night. And that buzz is saying the same thing to you that the crowd said to Jesus on his doorstep. That buzz is saying, now is not the time to take a break. And so it interrupts real conversation and it interrupts real intimacy and it interrupts real rest and real peace. Like the neighborhood might not be knocking on your front door, but if you're paying attention, the entire world is buzzing in your front pocket, just constant distraction. That's what is happening to Jesus when the entire town gathers at his doorstep. It's like there's just no rest for the weary, right? There's always more work to be done and there's always one more person you can talk to. Like now is not the time. Now is never the time to take a break. But the difference between the way that I approach my life of distraction and the way that Jesus approaches his life of distraction can be found in the very next verse of Mark. All right, so remember the whole town is gathered at his doorstep and it's late at night. He spends all night long caring for these people and healing people. And then this is what he does next. It says very early in the morning, 
while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And that is a theme that you will see all over the biographies of Jesus. Go read them for yourself and you will see this theme everywhere. It's this idea that as Jesus's popularity grew and as his time and schedule got busier, he committed more, not less, more time to withdrawing from the craziness. Luke chapter five tells us this, said the news about him, Jesus is spread all the more. And so now these crowds of people come to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Like sentence one is it's crazy. Sentence two is this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. See, for me at least, whenever life gets especially crazy and busy and distracted, the first thing to go for me, and I'm a pastor, the first thing to go for me is any sort of quiet time and solitude and prayer or time spent in relationship with God. It, not just God, also time spent in relationship with my family and friends because I'm telling myself, like, I just don't have time for that right now. I've got so much to do. Life is too crazy. And Jesus does the opposite Whenever life gets especially busy, crazy, and distracted for Jesus, he purposely schedules more time to be quiet and still in quality relationship with God. This whole idea, it reminds me of a quote from Martin Luther from way back in the day. Martin Luther once said this. He says, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And it doesn't even compute with my 21st century mind. I'm like, dude, if you're that busy, like you can't waste those precious three hours. But Luther and Jesus are telling us the same thing. They're saying the busier I get, the more time I dedicate to being alone with God. And our common reaction to that, mine included, is that I just don't see how the math works. Like I, I, it doesn't seem logical or sometimes it doesn't even seem wise. I don't typically see that time as time well spent. Why? Well, because I think we view that time as time spent doing nothing. Time spent being still and alone and quiet. Time spent in prayer. Time spent in relationship with Jesus. It's like, we're going like, well, how does that help me plow through my to-do list today? And how does that help me prep for the big meeting that I've got to lead tomorrow? And how does that help me pay my bills? And so we view that time as time spent doing nothing. But here's the truth. If we're gonna call that doing nothing, Jesus spent a lot of time doing nothing. And so what if one of our problems in the age of distraction is that we've taken this idea of having a rhythm to our day where we intentionally build in these times where our phone is just off and it's buried in some drawer somewhere and there's no screen in front of you and there's no to-do list or daily planner on your lap and you're just simply sitting on your back porch in the evening and you're just watching the sunset and you're just listening to the birds and you're just watching that rabbit sneak back into your garden and you're just sitting in the presence of God. What if our problem is that we've taken those moments and we've degraded them by saying that those moments accomplish nothing. And what if in reality, that kind of time is actually not unproductive? 
And what if that time is actually not like just running from your responsibilities? Like what if in reality, these moments of being still and quiet in the presence of God, like what if that's actually preparing you to handle your responsibilities in a better way? And what if it's incredibly productive? It's just productive for your heart and soul and mind and strength, things that are harder to see. Like what if this time is not time spent doing nothing, but instead time spent doing something, like something very important for the health of your spirit. That's what I see in the life of Jesus, at least. He often withdrew to lonely and solitary places to pray. And I don't believe that Jesus wasted time. I believe he saw his time as incredibly valuable. And so I don't think he viewed this time as doing nothing, as purposeless and unproductive. And I don't think he was running from his responsibilities. I think he was preparing for them. That's what you see if you pick our story back up in Mark. Remember, he sneaks out of the house early in the morning. He goes off to a solitary place to pray. And here's the very next verse. Simon and his companions, so Jesus' buddies, they went to go look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. So Jesus is gone. He wants to be by himself. He's out and and he's praying and his friends hunt him down and they find him and they exclaim. So they basically chastise him and yell at him and they go, Jesus, what are you doing? Like everyone is looking for you. They're basically saying the same thing the crowd said on his doorstep. They're going, Jesus, now is not the time to take a break. You've got to get back to work. And if it were me, I'm snapping at those guys. But instead, Jesus is calm. Look how he responds. Jesus replied. He basically says, you're right. You're right. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages and I can preach there also. Like that is why I have come. And so he got back to work. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. What you see in this story in Mark 1 is a broken, hurting world that is constantly demanding time and energy of Jesus. Even his friends are constantly demanding time and energy from Jesus, but Jesus doesn't snap. He doesn't look at him and go, buzz off. (laughs) I'm trying to get away from you people. Like I can't catch a breath. Leave me alone. He doesn't do that. Instead, apparently something healing happened to Jesus during his time of solitude and prayer that helped transition him from a crazy all-nighter evening of madness into another day that's going to be packed full of madness. His time of quiet prayer transitioned him from craziness to craziness without losing any peace. When Jesus disappears into solitary places to pray, he's not running away from his responsibility. His goal isn't to do less work. Remember what that verse just said. He goes, you're right. There's more work to be done. That's why I've come. Let's get back to work. His goal wasn't to do less work. His goal was to have more time in quiet prayer so that he could get all the work done and maintain a spirit of peace. One of the names of Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The man exudes peace. Uh, He's always the one in the room who's got his head screwed on straight. He's never reactionary because he's always productive, but he's always productive only because he often withdrew to lonely and solitary places to pray. 
One of the many things that we learn through the life of Jesus is actually the same thing that we're learning the hard way right now through the age of distraction. What we learn is that distraction is the most common enemy of peace. It's like we don't allow ourselves to have any downtime because we're constantly emailing, texting, scheduling. We're being productive, right? And so we're stressed out all the time. Or we do finally get some downtime, but we immediately fill it with the noise and distraction of social media and Netflix and like Wordle or whatever. And so we don't have any true rest and true peace for our souls. But then when you look at the life of Jesus, he often withdrew to solitary places to pray. Why? Well, because I believe he knew that the craziness is not gonna go away. In fact, the craziness is why he came. And so he often withdrew to pray, not to wish away the craziness, but to step back into it with a spirit of peace. The life of Jesus teaches us that distraction is the most common enemy of peace. And and that's like the negative way of saying that idea. But if we wanna say the same thing with a positive spin, We could say that Jesus teaches us that quiet prayer gives us peace in the midst of craziness. I recently read Pascal, okay, 17th century French mathematician and also Christian philosopher. Most of it went completely over my head because I'm not a French mathematician and I only pretend to be a Christian philosopher. But most of it I didn't understand. Some of it I did, and what I did understand was awesome. And I wanna share one of my favorite quotes from his book that I just read. Pascal said this, the cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. And I'm starting to agree. I mean, what if one of the main causes of our unhappiness like meaning our our anxiety and stress and our isolation and our anger, you name it. Like what if one of the main causes is because we don't anymore know how to stay quietly in any spot for like more than five seconds without pulling out our phones and plunging our hearts and souls and minds into the age of distraction. You just don't see that scatterbrained distraction in the life of Jesus. What you see modeled in the life of Jesus when he often withdrew to solitary places to pray, what you see is Jesus living out in action the words of Psalm 4610, which are this, be still and know that I am God. I'm sure a lot of us have heard that verse, be still and know that I am God. So be still, not, not this and this and this and this and this, don't. be still. And then know that God is God. He's still God. He didn't stop today, which means he's sovereign. The the way of thinking of that is he's king. So like be still and remember that God is still king over all the bills that you have to pay, right? And and be still and remember that he's king over your kids and your marriage and your mortgage and he's king over your career and he's king over your past and your present and your future, which means he sits on the throne and he oversees all of your life and he chooses to forgive your past. And then he chooses to be a good father to you in your present time of pain. And then he chooses to have something beautiful for you in your future. That's a promise to us from the book of Jeremiah. That's God himself speaking. He says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. They're plans to give you hope and a future. Be still and know that God is still God. He has gotten you this far 
He's not going to stop now. He's not going to give up on you now. Listen, the craziness is not going anywhere, right? Because just like Jesus, you and I have jobs to do. We're dads or we're moms or we're spouses, right? Or we're girlfriends and boyfriends or we're bosses and employees or we're students and teachers, we're friends and leaders. Like there's a great work to be done with your life and and you're the only one who's gonna be able to do it. And so the craziness isn't going away, but Jesus shows us that quiet prayer gives us peace in the midst of craziness. And I don't know about you, but I could use more peace in my life. My life, like for me and Allie right now, my life feels crazy, just like your life feels crazy. And I keep having these moments. I've had too many of these moments lately where I just like wake up one day and I'm like, it's July? How's it July? Does that mean I lived through all of June? Like, where was I for June? You know, it's like, so that means I went all through June without taking Allie on a single date or without getting back to my exercise plan like I told myself I was gonna do. And like, I made it all the way through June without taking my kids out of the house to go do something fun. And I don't wanna get to August and say the same thing about July. All right, time just It keeps marching on and life is crazy. I'm just tired of getting swallowed up by that craziness. I want peace and not just any peace. I want the peace that Jesus promised me. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. And shalom's a cool word. Shalom means a state of living in total completeness and wholeness and oneness where you feel that you lack nothing. And so when Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you and my peace I give you, he's talking about giving you a state of living in total oneness, oneness with Jesus, oneness with yourself, baggage included, and oneness with other people. And when we live in that kind of peace, like life can stay crazy and sometimes things can get really, really hard. But even in the midst of that craziness, we remain in oneness, wholeness, with Jesus and ourselves and others. And when we live in that kind of peace, our kids remain a priority, even though work is really stressful right now. And when we live in that kind of peace, we can go serve our spouses and go serve our friends in in a self-sacrificial and humble way because we feel that we lack nothing. And so we no longer need to use these people in order to feel better about ourselves. And when we live in that kind of peace, we can, not only can we weather all of the storms that life throws our way, but then we we can then become like this beacon of light to help guide other people through their own storms. And when we live in this kind of peace, like compassion becomes more important than protecting your own skin. And conversation becomes more important than argument. And slowing down becomes more important than getting stuff done. And being present becomes more important than mindless distraction. And when we live with this kind of peace, friendship becomes more important than followers. And truly living in a moment becomes more important than posting it. And I don't know about you, but I want to live with that kind of peace. And that's the peace that Jesus offers me. And he offers it to you too. And so if you're nodding your head with me, you know, and you're going like, yeah, I want more of that peace. Then maybe it's time for us to take a page out of Jesus's book and practice his way for finding peace in the midst of craziness. 
right? And here's how we can start trying to do that this week. I'm gonna do this homework with you. I need it in my life. We can do this together, all right? Here's how we can try to practice peace with Jesus. The first step is this. Every day, schedule 30 minutes of no tech time, all right? That's no phones, no computers, no TV, no tablet, no smartwatch, no nothing, all right? The goal is to have 30 minutes of distraction-free time. This is the modern-day equivalent of Jesus going to a solitary place, all right? Once you've done that, spend that time being still and knowing that God is God, all right? If step one is like going to a solitary place, step two is quiet prayer. Just be still, all right? Try not to tweak, try not to twitch, right? Don't get up, don't leave. Even though your brain is gonna convince you that you're missing the most important text message you've ever received in your entire lifetime, just be still, all right? And in that stillness, Know that God is God. You have nothing else to do right now for these 30 minutes, nothing to do other than to sit in the presence of your God and know that he's sovereign. He's king over your life. He's not gonna choose today and he's not gonna choose this season of your life to fall asleep at the wheel. He's got plans for you. They're plans to prosper you and not harm you. They're plans to give you hope and a future. Reflect on the sovereignty of God. When you start to feel anxious and stressed during this 30 minutes, talk to him about that. 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we can cast all our anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for us. And so 30 minutes from now, do it. You go back to problem-solving mode. But for this 30 minutes, these are problems that don't need solved right now. They're problems that you can cast on the back of your God because he's strong enough to carry them with you. And then even though all of this sounds simple enough, you will be shocked at how difficult it is to practice, especially at the beginning. Eventually you'll get into the rhythm and and you'll have these thoughts of like, I can't believe I lived without this, all right? But at the beginning, you're gonna find yourself super distracted. You're gonna start convincing yourself that it is purposeless and that this time is achieving nothing. And so here's a little bonus tip if you ever feel stuck. If you ever feel stuck, read Psalm 46, all right? Even if you just have to read that thing the whole time, you gotta read it 30 times. Read Psalm 46. This Psalm is all about taking refuge in the strength and peace of God. And this Psalm is meant to be read out loud and reflected on whenever you're trying to be still and know that God is God. I'm gonna start doing that. I've already started doing that, actually. Um, I think it would be worth your time, but I'm not your dad. You do what you want. (laughs) All right, listen, the craziness of life is is not going away, all right? And, And that's because you and I have an important work to do with our lives. We're the only ones who can do it, all right? But, but this, this, age we live in where we distract ourselves, whether by trying to be constantly productive or we're just numbing ourselves with mindless entertainment, like that distraction is not fostering peace in our lives. In fact, it's creating the exact opposite. And so if we want real peace in the midst of craziness, let's follow Jesus's lead and find times to withdraw to solitary places to pray and to be still and to remember that God is God and he's not going to give up on you now. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask that you stand with me. And our prayer today is just gonna be Psalm 46. I'm gonna pray this over us. And three different times in this Psalm, there's this weird word in there um, and it's Salah, all right, Salah. 
And maybe you've seen that if you've read other Psalms, you see that word Salah. What it is, is it's telling these Psalms were meant to be like read and sung out loud in groups, all right? And Salah is telling you what to do as a group. And so anytime you read the word Salah, what you're supposed to do is breathe in, breathe out, and then keep reading the Psalm. It's these little practices of being still and taking a breath, even in the middle of this Psalm. And so close your eyes. I'm gonna pray this Psalm over us right now. And anytime I say Salah, we're gonna take a break and take a breath, and then we'll keep going. All right, this is our prayer. This is Psalm 46. All right, God is our refuge and strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. And therefore, because of that, we will not fear. We won't fear. Even if the earth were to give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and even if the waters were to start to roar and foam, and because of that, the mountains start to quake with their surging. Salah, take a breath. There's a river, all right, and whose streams make glad the city of God and, and the holy place where the most high dwells. And God is within her, within this city, and she will not fall. And God will help her at break of day. And nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall, but God lifts his voice and the earth melts. And that God, the Lord Almighty, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah, take a breath. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth and he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the shields with fire. And so be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. And that God, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah, take a breath. God, our, our prayer is short and sweet. God, would you teach us to, to be still and to remember that you are God and you're not giving up on us now. God, would you help to give us peace in the midst of craziness? That's it. Our prayer is Psalm 46, and we pray that in the name of Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Amen.